10th of December in 1948, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the United Nations General Assembly proclaimed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Eleanor Roosevelt was the driving force behind this historical achievement. This Universal Declaration of Human Rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. Today we also face human rights challenges that at first sight may seem unrelated. At this moment, the number of obese people in the world exceeds the number of people who are starving. Hello and welcome to Aletta Talks, research podcast of the Aletta Jakob School of Public Health. What does obesity have to do with freedom and human rights? Is it sometimes justified to restrict one human right to ensure another? In this very first episode, I'm talking to Brigitte Tubes to shed a light on these questions. She is a professor of health law in a global context, new scientific director of the Oleta Jakob School, a great advocate for justice, and an absolute expert in the field. I'm Leonie van Ristok. Thank you for listening. All right. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Before the first time we talked, I've never actually realized that there's a connection between human rights and obesity. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit what that connection is. Yes, thank you. So when we think about human rights, we often think about uh, dramatic things that happen elsewhere in the world. Human rights violations on the battlefield, torture in prisons. But human rights is actually a much wider um, concept or set of standards. We also have human rights to food, to health. So in the human rights mechanisms, we make a distinction between two types of human rights, international civil and political human rights and economic, social and cultural rights. And these civil and political rights include rights to life, freedom of expression, prohibition of torture. But we also have these economic and social rights, including the right to food, the right to health and the right to education, for example. And how does that relate to obesity or how does that influence obesity? So the right to food and the right to health protect our health and our food and our food environment. Obesity is a, is a large societal problem, among other food problems that we have in the world today. And all governments around the world have responsibilities to realize the right to food in their countries. So they have to take certain measures to reduce food problems, including obesity. All right. So if we're talking about the right to health and the right to food, what does it mean exactly? What is our right in that? So we all have human rights, which are individual rights, which belong to us simply because we are human beings. And these human rights that we have as individuals translate into obligations of states. So the question is, what is government supposed to do to realize our right to food? That's a, a big question, but a, a very rough answer is that government has to realize the availability, accessibility and quality of our food and create a healthy food environment for all of us. All right. So one thing that I understood makes it complicated for governments to actually make sure that those rights are met is the right to uh, personal autonomy. So I was wondering if you can elaborate how that makes it complicated. 
Yes. So from the perspective of law, we know that certain legal measures are very effective in creating a healthy food environment. The top three of effective measures are increasing price of unhealthy products, reducing the number of points of sale of unhealthy products, for example, around schools, and also prohibiting the marketing of unhealthy food. But if you take those kind of measures, it will, to some extent, infringe with personal autonomy. You reduce choice. You reduce personal choice. So you can say that the right to food is a tension with this right to personal autonomy. So would you say that sometimes it's okay to restrict one right to ensure another? Yes, to the extent that the restriction is proportionate. So what would be a good or a fair way or a working way to, to deal with that tension between those two rights? Well, I think it's, it's good to, to take as a starting point that there is this tension. And it is maybe also a bit counterintuitive that you recognize a right, the right to food, and this right is then being realized by reducing your choice, right? But I think it's important to realize that consumers are also vulnerable in that sense. It's not always easy to make good choices. And consumers do not always make choices that are good for them. I think this has also been very eloquently expressed by the scholar Cass Sunstein in his book Why Nudge? Because people do not always make choices that are good for them, we need to take certain legal measures to ensure that we create a healthy food environment within which they can make certain healthy choices. And, I mean, it's possible that people maybe don't want to make a healthy choice. So by changing the environment, you would somehow push them in a certain direction. I'm wondering, like, how far can you go? To what extent is it still okay to change a certain environment to actually influence people to express a certain behavior? And how do you decide when it is actually good or, or not? Freedom and autonomy are valued very highly in our society. These are important human rights values. So we need to protect them as much as we can. But we also see that if we allow so many unhealthy food choices to exist in our society, that this leads to human rights violations in a different way. Because we are, in that sense, not respecting people's right to health, their right to food. Is it actually possible now for governments to regulate that? Yes, so to say that there's a human right is one thing and that there is an obligation for government to regulate is another thing. But then to change things practically is more difficult and it requires the amendment of certain laws. And this is a very difficult and cumbersome process. But we have to keep trying and see how far we can get. Yeah, so in order to actually make sure that the human rights are also enforced things would have to change. Yes, so you can also say that in order to realize our human rights, the government has to ensure that certain laws are in place and that the laws reflect human rights, that the laws are human rights proof. So laws have also got to be right to food and right to health proof. And to what extent are the laws now human rights proof? I think much more can be achieved. I have not seen the sugar tax adopted in the Netherlands yet, whereas many surrounding countries and other countries around the world have 
fairly good experiences with this law. So these are all things that need to be explored. And yeah, I think government could perhaps be a bit more forthcoming when it comes to these matters. Het Europees Verdrag tot bescherming van de rechten van de mens verplicht de staten die bij het verdrag zijn aangesloten om hun ingezetenen de rechten en vrijheden te verzekeren. The final verdict to the agenda case in 2019 has been called a victory in the fight to limit climate change and a milestone for human rights and public interest litigation. I am wondering if a similar scenario could be possible in a case for the human rights to health and adequate food. Let's have a look. Yes, so the Urgenda judgment was a very important judgment from the perspective of human rights. It was a really important human rights case because the court said that the right to life and the right to family life had been violated because government is taking insufficient measures to reduce the damaging effects of climate change. So that sets an important standard. The problem is that courts are very reluctant to adjudicate cases on the basis of a right to health and a right to food. They are more willing to judge on the basis of a right to life and a right to family life. They will say that the right to food, the right to health is very open-ended and that uh, it's not really for the courts to decide how far policy should go in these fields. Why is it that they're more willing to look at cases in the light of life and family life and not health and food? Because if food and health is impacting our life in the end, I mean, in the end, uh, the life expectancy, if you don't eat well, if you can't afford enough healthy food, is way less. So in the end, it's also about life. I really like your view on this. Um, this distinction between civil and political rights and economic, social and cultural rights has grown historically. Already when these treaties were adopted, there was disagreement between East and West, between US and former USSR about the nature of these rights. And there was this idea that civil and political rights are primarily freedom rights. Economic and social rights, they are rights, they are legally binding. But in practice, they do not have the same legal status as the civil and political rights. So human rights are actually subject to discrimination themselves. How is that possible? I think there is the fear that a right to health is actually costly. Mm. The idea is there that maybe freedom of expression is, is a cheap right. You can easily respect freedom of expression. Just let people say what they want. You've guaranteed freedom of expression. And that the right to health is actually really costly because you have to build a properly functioning health system and do many things in order to ensure that people are healthy. And there is some truth in that distinction, but this distinction is not as black and white as it is often positioned. Because, for example, another civil and political right that's very costly is the right to fair trial. That's a civil and political right, but you can immediately see how expensive it is to build a properly functioning judicial system, for example. So all rights are potentially costly. Yeah, I can see that that would be a reason, but it seems a little bit contradictive to say, okay, we want to enforce the, the right to, to something we don't have to do anything about, uh, but not when we have to actually act. Yes, 
And the core principle that underlies all the human rights is this concept of human dignity. We all have human dignity, and human dignity is what all human rights ultimately protect. So human dignity protects our privacy, our physical integrity, but it also protects our health and our socioeconomic circumstances. So I would argue we have to take a holistic approach to human dignity. And in that way, we can also recognize and protect our right to food and our right to health. So, there are two kinds of human rights. Those that protect our life and freedom directly and those that protect the circumstances under which we are living. Now, what does that mean in practice? What measures could be taken to improve the circumstances that lead to the obesity pandemic? I think it's first important to realize that law is just one determinant of, of health. So there's many measures that you can take, but you happen to sit here talking to a lawyer. So the lawyer says to you, why not take a bunch of legal measures in order to ensure that we have a healthier food environment? A broadly discussed idea is to raise the taxes on sugar, the so-called sugar tax. And in addition to that, cutting the, the tax for fruit and vegetables. So not only making unhealthy products more costly, but also making healthy products cheaper. So those two measures, in my view, would be very good measures. And based on scientific evidence, measures that have a positive health outcome. Makes sense, right? Lowering the prices for healthy food and increasing the prices for unhealthy food. What makes it so hard to realize these ideas? To some extent, it's difficult technically, but there may also be pressure from the food industry, the beverages industry, not to adopt stricter laws. And how fierce these pressures are, we don't know. But what we do know was that when the prevention agreement was adopted a number of years ago, The tobacco industry was no longer sitting at the table of the negotiations, but the food and beverages industry was sitting at the table. So they still have a strong say in the adoption of laws. They can still influence government to a considerable extent. And in that respect, it is regretful that we do not have a treaty on food because there is a global treaty on tobacco which prohibits government to talk to the tobacco industry when designing new policies and laws in the field of tobacco. And this treaty was adopted within the framework of the World Health Organization in 2003. Yeah, since then, many countries around the world have changed their laws in light of this treaty. A similar treaty for food would make it easier, for example, to change laws regarding our health and food environment. Unfortunately, adopting such a treaty is everything but easy. Because in this world, the people who have the money are the people who are making part of the decision. This was Grohalem Brundtland, former director of the World Health Organization and former prime minister of Norway. She was very much in favor of the tobacco treaty. And she was able to push for it together with a number of NGOs. So you need that kind of norm entrepreneur, as they call it in international relation theory, pushing for such a treaty. And there will be resistance from many stakeholders, including from the industry. Yeah, I can imagine. 
that the food industry would not always be very happy with, with sugar taxes because I assume it's a large income source for them. Of course, yeah, and they are not happy with a marketing ban, for example. I think low-hanging fruit is to, to regulate the marketing of unhealthy products more strictly because currently the marketing of products in the Netherlands is still in the hands of self-regulation. The regulation that regulates this is called reclamecode and it's not like a law that regulates all these stakeholders very strictly so they can basically organize this for themselves how they want to restrict the marketing of unhealthy products. That is in my view something that should really be looked at and amended where possible. So actually now they can advertise in whichever way they want? No, there are rules, you know, you cannot just advertise whatever you want. For example, on TV, only after a certain time in the evening, you can advertise certain products. But we could go further with this. And what you also see is that there's still many areas where there is a lot of advertisement for unhealthy products. We do not see precisely what our children see on social media, for example. There is a lot of that on the Internet, generally. There are influencers who are being paid to promote unhealthy products. Yeah, and uh, for the internet, the time restriction also doesn't really work. No, indeed, yeah. Then you could say, well, why not ban it completely? Yeah, why not? Yeah, well, asking the question is answering the question, I would say. Ideas like making healthy food more affordable, a sugar tax, banning marketing on unhealthy foods are all on the table. Now, we heard that the food industry has quite some influence on food policies. But what about their human rights obligations? What I would find an interesting case is against food and beverages industry, where you say you also have a human rights responsibility. Given the tremendous power and influence that you exert over our health and well-being, you have a societal responsibility to realize to some extent at least our human rights. And that is now also developing. And there has been a recent judgment against company Shell, where it was recognized that Shell had, to some extent, certain human rights responsibilities. And internationally, it is recognized that corporations do not have the full breadth of human rights responsibilities that governments have, but they have a responsibility to respect human rights. And then you can ask yourself, what does that mean? Respect human rights as a, as a company. And, well, to some extent, it makes a clear case. I would argue, if you produce a product that is clearly unhealthy, you are not respecting the right to health. You are not respecting the right to life. I would argue you that for tobacco, this makes an even clearer case, because this is a deadly product. It shouldn't be on the market. So the tobacco industry is violating the right to life and the right to health. I'm waiting for such a human rights case against the tobacco company. But potentially, a similar case could be started against a food company for producing products that are unhealthy, contain a lot of sugar, fat. And how would you argue against that? Not sure if this is an answer to your question, but it's interesting to see that the industry has also claimed human rights. 
So the tobacco industry has claimed freedom of expression. It would imply the ability to market its products. It has claimed a right to property. And so that could be the defense. The industry also has human rights. My answer to that would be human rights are something that we primarily as individuals have. It's about our values and the protection of our health, our food, our social well-being, our human dignity, and not that of the industry. We're talking about freedom and, for example, the food supply in, in the supermarkets right now is about 80% unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So how free are we then actually in our choice? Well, you're asking a lawyer, right? I think there is a vacuum in our thinking about freedom. I think we need to talk more about what we perceive as true freedom in this society. I have been very confused in the corona crisis where there was this claim that people wanted autonomy, but we also wanted a healthy society. I'm just confused about how we perceive freedom and autonomy and what are our values. And maybe this is a call on philosophers, ethicists, to offer a framework for how we can think about this and how we can come to a better understanding of freedom and how we can curb our freedom in a way that is satisfying for our society. Of course, I can say this is these are the tools for how we can do this in human rights law. But it seems that we need also a broader societal discussion about this. To be healthy is a kind of freedom. To be free from disease and impairment and pain. According to Sridhar Venkatapuram, senior lecturer on global health science from the King's College in London, one of the first principles of the human right to health is freedom. If we think about people's ability to be healthy, we should ensure the conditions in which people are able to be healthy. What they do with that ability, how they use that freedom, is up to them. So, there are certain human rights that are not concrete enough formulated to be enforceable. The food industry claims human rights for themselves while actually violating them. And there seems to be a vacuum in our freedom. Sounds to me like there's still some work to do on this front. If you like this story, please like and follow A Letter Talks. Share with your friends, colleagues and whoever else you think might be interested. For now, I want to thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned, take care and hear you soon.